I went to the eye doctor for the first time as a sixth grader. I had brought a C home on my report card, and so my mom went into investigator mode like a detective, and she concluded and realized that because my seat was in the back of the classroom in math, that I must, like my mom and dad, be at that age where I too needed glasses. I couldn't see, but I didn't realize it. I remember going to the eye doctor to pick up my first pair of glasses and putting them on for the first time. And suddenly everything came into focus. I remember with surprise looking outside across the valley and seeing uh, uh, off in the distance a mountain and being able to see each individual tree on the top of that mountain far off in the distance. And I was shocked. I didn't realize that you were supposed to see things so clearly. I had been short-sighted for so long, I didn't realize my problem. There wasn't a problem with that whiteboard in my math class, just a problem with my eyes. I couldn't see clearly. In our passage this morning, the people of Israel in Jesus' day have a similar problem. They can't see Jesus clearly. The problem is not with Jesus, but with their hearts. They are hard-hearted. The problem is not with Jesus or with God's revelation through Jesus. The problem is with their spiritual eyes. They are blind. But what's worse than that? They're blind and they don't realize it. They're convinced that they can see, which is much worse. Turn with me in your Bibles to another study in Luke. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. Luke 11 and 27 you'll remember in our passage last week, Jesus had cast out a demon from a demon-possessed man who was keeping the man mute. He couldn't speak. And after Jesus releases this man from the demon, some in the crowds begin accusing Jesus of using Satan's power to perform these miraculous signs. And they say it is by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that he casts out demons. Jesus patiently and lovingly takes time to prove them wrong with clear logic. But do you remember in that passage last week that there were others in the crowd who weren't going so far to accuse Jesus of using Satan's power to do miracles, but who were just asking for a clearer sign? Well, this morning, Jesus turns to address these people. And if you're taking notes... We'll have three points this morning. Three points. And to help you remember it, they are alliterated. Three B's. Point number one, blessing. Point number two, belief. And point number three, blindness. Blessing, belief, and blindness. I pray this morning that God would give us eyes to see Jesus as the light of the world. And having seen him, I pray that we would be his faithful witnesses in this dark world. Let's begin by reading our passage. Follow along with me as I begin reading, and I'll I'll read the whole passage. Luke 11, verses 27 to 36. You can also find it if you have your e-bulletin still pulled up on that PDF. It's on page 4. This is God's Word. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. 
But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, Something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Point number one, blessing. Point number one, blessing. Verses 27 and 28. As we saw last week, and as we will see today, many of the religious leaders are dismissing Jesus. They're rejecting him. But in contrast to this, Luke records that there is one woman in the crowd who sees Jesus more clearly. A woman clearly can see that Jesus is a prophet. And so she cries out a blessing on Jesus' mother. She sees this great man, and she wishes that she had a son like this. As one writer explains, blessings like this were common ways of speaking in Jesus' Day, But such blessings were not employed primarily to eulogize mothers, but to pay tribute to exceptionally worthy individuals born of them. It was a way of blessing Jesus. So do you see this woman has eyes to see that Jesus is unique, that he is important, worthy of praise. She sees what many can't. But while this woman sees Jesus more clearly than many... Even she hasn't seen him clearly enough. She sees him merely on a human level. What a great man. And wouldn't it be great to be a relative of a man like this? Now notice what Jesus does here. He doesn't disagree with her. The word rather here in Greek has the meaning yes, but even more. Not eh, wrong answer, but yes, you're right. But there's something even more important here, and let me tell you what it is. So first, Jesus agrees with this woman. It is clear from not only this passage, but from Luke chapter 1, earlier in this same book, that Mary was blessed by God. In Luke chapter 1, if you'll remember, verse 26, the angel Gabriel comes. He was sent by God to a virgin whose name was Mary. And in Luke 1, verse 28, the angel comes to her and says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. She's afraid, unsure of what this means. In verse 30, the angel says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Is Mary blessed? Yes, she's blessed. 
And look at what the angel says, verse 31. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Is Mary blessed? Yes, she was greatly blessed by God. But do you know that being Jesus' mother was not her greatest blessing? Mary goes right after this in Luke 1 to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who's also pregnant by a miracle in her old age with John the Baptist. And when Elizabeth sees her, and John the Baptist leaps in her womb, Elizabeth exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Almost the exact language of this woman. But listen to what Elizabeth says to Mary next. Verse 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. If you remember back in Luke chapter 1, there's a contrast going on in Luke 1 to messages from angels, to miraculous births, to responses to that revelation. And do you see what Elizabeth draws attention to? It's not that Mary was going to give birth to the Messiah, but that Mary believed the word of the Lord. And this is in stark contrast to Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, who heard the word, but was skeptical. A baby at my age, at my wife's age. You see, Mary was blessed by God, but her greatest blessing came the same way that you and I are blessed, the same way that this very woman who is excited about Jesus, can be blessed too. And this woman who is blessing Jesus and Jesus' mother can be just as blessed as her if she will do the same thing that Mary does, believe God's word, hear it, believe it. And in believing the gospel message, believing in Jesus, be brought into an eternal spiritual family through faith. You see, she can be related to Jesus, not by being a physical mother to Jesus, but by faith in Jesus, being brought into God's family. We must remember that Mary's son is also Mary's Lord. Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born in Luke chapter 2. No, he had existed from before time began. He is the eternal God, the Son. And Mary herself had to humble herself to trust in her physical son for her own salvation for the forgiveness of her own sins because while mary carried jesus in her womb for nine months and sustained his life as a mother through loving care jesus created mary and the whole universe with his word jesus holds mary in his hand you see jesus is not just a great man or a great prophet he is the word of god made flesh he is the king of creation, and he entered space and time. He took on our humanity to save sinners from death. If you are here and you're not a Christian, this is good news for you. You know, it doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter who you know. If you want ultimate blessing, true blessing, it isn't in getting in with the right people. It is in entering into a relationship with God. And your pedigree doesn't matter. Your family doesn't matter. Your status here on earth does not matter. The only thing that matters 
is whether or not you hear God's word and keep it. And what that means for you is responding rightly to Jesus and responding rightly to this gospel message. The gospel message is this. You are a sinner and you deserve God's wrath because you, like all humanity, have turned from your good and loving God and rejected him. And like all of us, you have been condemned by God as criminals, rebels against our good and loving creator. And the good news is that Jesus has come. God made man. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. He was raised from the dead, as we'll see later in the passage, proving his, his victory over sin and death. And he calls sinners like you and me to respond to this message by turning from our sins and trusting in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. This is what it means to hear God's word and to keep it, to repent and to believe. Let me encourage you today, for you can be the day of salvation if you will hear God's word and keep it by responding this way to the gospel message. If you've come with a, a, a friend, I know your friend would love to tell you more about this gospel message. I would love to speak with you after. If you have questions about this or want to know how it is that you can enter into a relationship with Christ and be part of God's family forever. Brothers and sisters, not only is this applicable for non-Christians, it's applicable for us as well. We must see here God's love for us in revelation. God, in his great kindness, has revealed truth to us. And not only this, he's revealed himself to us in God's revelation, in his word, in Christ. God reveals himself. He opens up himself to mankind, revealing his mind and his heart to us. And he's done this, not to good people, but to sinners, the worst of sinners. And God's purpose in revealing himself is to establish a relationship, to bring us into a relationship with him, to reconcile us back to him, which shows not only his love, but his great mercy and his kindness towards sinners, his grace to give salvation, which is undeserved. Brothers and sisters, we need to treasure God's word, to delight in it, to hear it regularly, and not just hear it, to understand it, to be, as James says in James 1, hearers of the word, but even more doers of it. I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to respond faithfully to God's revelation as you have received it. This transitions well into our next point, point number two, belief. While this woman sees more than many, even she hasn't seen him clearly yet. But that helps us to see what's happening in our next section. Jesus is now addressing uh, people who are demanding a sign from him. Jesus addressed in our last passage last week the people who accused him of performing miracles by Satan. Now he addresses those who are demanding a greater sign from him to test him, it says in Luke eleven sixteen. Point number two, blessing. I'm oh, sorry, believer. Sorry, point number two, belief. Belief. Blessing and now belief. You see in our passage that there are those here who are refusing to believe in God. And so Jesus is now going to explain to them what it means to believe in him and the responsibility upon those who receive such revelation 
and to refuse to believe. This demand from the crowd for a greater sign may not seem very surprising or even very shocking. I wonder if you, like the crowds, would just like God to make himself more clear. Do you know that behind this is a a skeptical attitude? Someone once asked the 20th century atheist philosopher, Bertrand Russell, who was a famous skeptic, and who had spent much of his time attempting to disprove religion in general and Christianity in particular, someone asked him what would he do if he found himself standing before God on Judgment Day, and God asked him, why didn't you believe in me? And Russell replied, I would say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. This is the attitude of the skeptic. Now, it sounds more reasonable than accusing Jesus of doing miracles by Satan. It doesn't sound as bad as that. It's less alarming. We're not unwilling to believe in you, Jesus. We just haven't been convinced yet. You haven't proved yourself enough yet. And it looks like this attitude among the crowds was more widespread. But do you notice that, as one commentator put it, it's just as adversarial They are still setting themselves against Jesus. They are, in effect, taking the same skeptical attitude, but making it sound better. They're crossing their arms. They're sitting in judgment seats. And they're telling Jesus what he has to do, what hoops he has to jump through for them to believe in him. Now, there's a lot going on behind these demands. Some of it is dealing with the particular politics and situation of Israel in in the first century in which Jesus found himself. Some of that is the messianic hope and desire that the Israelites had as they read their Old Testament and as they looked at their particular political situation being under the thumb of Rome and the Roman Empire, what they wanted out of their Messiah was someone to come and deliver them from Rome. And they wanted proof that whatever Messiah they were to believe in would be able to do what they wanted him to do. That's part of what's going on here. Yeah, your your teaching is interesting. These miracles are nice, but we want something bigger and better. It may be that they wanted some kind of proof, like with Moses in Egypt, some great miracle or plague. Perhaps they wanted something like Elijah calling down fire on God's enemies. They wanted something big and grand. And so unless Jesus did something that they thought was big enough or proof enough, they were refusing to believe in him. Do you see what Jesus does here? He refuses to capitulate to their commands. He refuses to allow them in their pride and arrogance and in their sin to sit in judgment of him. You notice what he says here. No such sign is going to be given to them. He points them to the sign of the Old Testament prophet of Jonah. And he points them to the Queen of Sheba in the Old Testament as well. He points them to two Old Testament situations in which Gentiles responded better to lesser revelation than these people are responding to greater revelation. Jesus does an interesting thing here. He sets up these two Old Testament accounts 
and says that these people on the last day are going to serve as witnesses in the court of judgment in which these Israelites will be judged for rejecting Jesus. Look at the two accounts here. The first account, he says, is the account of Jonah and Nineveh. And he says that no sign will be given to this generation, this evil generation, except the sign of Jonah. Seems to be a reference as Matthew 12 puts it, to Jonah's three days in the belly of the whale, who then comes back as if from the dead and preaches repentance, a message of repentance to the people of Nineveh. That is going to be the sign that points to the future sign of Jesus when he will be crucified, but then will be raised from the dead coming out of the belly of the earth. But not only does he point to that as a sign, he points the people to two groups of people. The first is the Ninevites. These Gentiles responded to a very fickle prophet. You remember Jonah. He was probably the worst prophet in the Old Testament. God told him to go and to preach a message of repentance to Nineveh, and he got in a boat and went in the opposite direction. When God eventually saved him from death through this great fish... He eventually goes and preaches, but even there he's grumpy and his message is about the shortest prophetic message you could give, which is yet 40 days and Nineveh will fall. And how did the Ninevites respond to this fickle prophet and this very short prophecy? Well, the whole city repented. The whole city heard the message. They turned from their sins and they were rescued from judgment. Jesus is holding up these Gentiles, the Ninevites, to shame the Jews. He also holds out, secondly, the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings, chapter 10. The Queen of Sheba, that is from Arabia, travels a far distance because she hears of the wisdom of Solomon. She, she takes it upon herself to travel and then to bring gifts in order to just meet Solomon, to sit at his feet and to learn from his wisdom. This Gentile queen shames these Israelites because of how she responds to lesser revelation. Jesus says there's going to be a court scene one day and that there is going to be greater expectations on those that have received a greater revelation to respond and be responsible to that greater revelation. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, based on how much revelation you've received, you have a greater responsibility to uh, be accountable for it. This would be like me as a parent or you as a parent. Imagine having a 14-year-old child and a 5-year-old child and giving them both the same command, go clean your room. Now, as you give the same command to two children, one who's 14, a teenager, and one who's 5, a kindergartner, do you have the same level of expectation of obedience when it comes to these children? No, you have a greater expectation that the 14-year-old should be responsible than the 5-year-old. Why is that? Well... He's nine years older. He said nine years more experience, nine years more of being your child, nine years more to understand the rules and the consequences in your household. Now, what happens if the five-year-old does it and the 14-year-old refuses? As a parent, 
you're going to be surprised. Jesus here is surprised. He's surprised that these Israelites who refused to believe in the greatest and clearest revelation, God himself in human flesh, the creator of the world who's come and who is demonstrating who he is in the kingdom that he's bringing through his teaching and through his miracles. And he's saying there are people on the last day who will stand up as witnesses in God's courtroom who will point at you and as witnesses will say, this is what I heard and this is what I did. And they will be judged because they heard and saw so much more and they refused to believe. This is a clear picture of the reality of sin, of our original sin that all of us have. Of our blindness to the truth, of our hard-heartedness. That we close our eyes to reality because of our pride, because of our self-seeking. You know that this is all of us apart from the Lord's work. All of us would see such clear revelation and reject it, scoff at it, be skeptical of it, make excuses and walk away. And why do we do this? Well, because of our sin. The truth about God and his holiness and his expectations for us. Well, they they cramp our style. They get in the way of the life that we want, of the things that we want. And so we are skeptical. Our sin causes us to reject God's revelation. Brothers and sisters, there is on us who have God's word in our language, who have not just the Old Testament as these Israelites had, and not just Jesus revealed, but we have both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the whole counsel of God, and not just the Bible somewhere, but each of us has it in our own home. You know, there is on us a particular burden of responsibility as God has revealed himself in his word and has in his sovereignty given us the full canon of scripture. There is a burden of responsibility on us to be faithful with what God has revealed to us. The fact that you have God's word in a language that you know, have a Bible in your home, that's a precious gift, but it's also a a burden of responsibility. And what this means for you is it is required of you not only to believe the gospel, but to steward this truth faithfully. All of us are in danger of having a skeptical or judgmental attitude like these people, of crossing our arms and sitting in judgment on God. But brothers and sisters, there is a day coming, a day of judgment that Jesus is pointing to here. And not only will those that have refused to believe the gospel message, not only will they be judged, but even God's people, you and I, will be held to account for what we have done with the truth that we know, the truth that has been revealed to us. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you not to make excuses, not to be busy plugging your ears to God and to his truth, but to be treasuring God's word. And not just delighting in knowing the truth, but be faithful in stewarding that truth. And that brings us to our third point. Our third point, which is blindness. You see here Jesus now explaining to us what is happening in our passage. Why are these people refusing to believe? Well, they have a vision problem. They have a sight problem. Their eyes are not healthy. So point number three, blindness. 
me read one more time that section. Beginning in verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Jesus here uses two illustrations. Illustrations around similar themes, the theme of light and darkness. The city of uh, the theme of light, and then also our eyes, our ability to see. This is a, a way the Bible talks about revelation. That is God revealing Himself to us. You can think of all of those cartoons that you've seen as a child. When someone gets an idea, what what happens? Well, a light bulb goes off in their head. This is a way that God describes his revelation. He has revealed himself to us, and it is light. The light of the truth has come upon us when God speaks to us. The Bible is clear that there's two kinds of revelation. We we know from the very uh, chapter that was read at the beginning, our call to worship in Psalm 19. Let me encourage you to read that this afternoon. That there is both a general revelation, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies declare something of what God is like, which the Apostle Paul picks up on in Romans chapter 1 and says that all of us, all humanity has received a general revelation about God simply through the creation. The fact that the creation exists, the fact that we are here tells us that God exists and that he is powerful. Not only that, that general revelation also includes our conscience, which Paul continues to talk about in the early chapters of Romans. There is the law of God written on our hearts. We know the difference between right and wrong because of God's general revelation. But not only has God revealed himself generally in a way that allows us to logically connect the dots that a creator exists. No, God has also given us a special revelation. That is, God has spoken to us the truth in his word. He has revealed himself to us through his word, the Bible. Now, as this light of truth enters into our minds, we then have an opportunity to respond to it. We can keep our eyes open. We can receive the truth and not just receive it, but believe it. And if we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, not only do we understand the truth, but now our whole lives are full of light. And God begins to deal with the darkness inside of us, which includes not only our confusion and our blindness and our misunderstanding, our ignorance of the truth, but it also then works its way out into helping us to understand our sin and then helping us to bring our lives into the light where we will walk in the light as he is in the light and begin living like God lives, a life of holiness. Now the issue with The Israelites, as we saw in our previous section, is that they are blind. They cannot see. They have received the light, the light as of a lamp of Jesus, the light of the world. Now, how did they respond to it? Did they embrace it? Were they excited about it? Did they, like someone with a lamp, put it on a stand 
so that those who enter may see the light. No, they have rejected this truth. They have sought to hide it, to discredit Jesus, to reject him, to dismiss him. So then the second illustration, beginning in verse 34, is like your eye. If you, your eye is bad, your whole body is in darkness. And the same thing is true with our spiritual sight. If we do not have the ability to see spiritual truth, if we're not spiritually able to see, our whole lives are in the darkness. You see here the importance of our approach. These people are demanding a sign. And yet they are actually willingly closing their eyes to the truth. Not only are they blind, even the things that they do see, they are refusing to respond to. Our eyes are able to see uh, incredible and beautiful things, which is what makes blindness such a tragedy. There is so much light and beauty in this world that in God, creating our eyes allows us to see. I heard a podcast this week about John Newton. I'm sorry, Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton. And how he wrote a whole treatise about the eye and about light and about refraction. About how Jonathan Edwards read that and wrote his own piece on the eye and on light and on beauty. It is an amazing thing what our eyes are able to comprehend and to see. Which is what makes blindness so sad and so disappointing to miss out on all of the beauty that our eyes can see. But there is a much worse tragedy than mere physical blindness, and that is what is Jesus is talking about here, physical, a spiritual blindness. These people are unable to see glory. They have glory in front of them, and they cannot see it. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, if you are able to see Jesus, if you are able to delight in Jesus, that this is not describing you. And let me encourage you, if you can see Jesus clearly, you know him, that you would be faithful with what you can see and so treasure Jesus. If you are perhaps in a season finding it difficult to see and to delight in Jesus, let me give you a couple of book recommendations. The first is this wonderful little book by John Piper, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. I have an extra copy of it. I'm going to leave it up here afterwards if any of you would like it, if one of you would like it. You may have this. What John Piper does so helpfully in this book is helps us to understand what it means to see Jesus with the eyes of faith. And not only to see him, but to delight in him, to savor him, to enjoy what we see. Another helpful book is A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. This isn't a book to read quickly or to speed read, but one to read slowly and to meditate on. And what he's doing in this book is helping us to understand how to see Jesus, how to meditate on the truth of the gospel, and then to see that truth seep into our very pores, into our hearts and very lives. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, if you can see Jesus, to not only see him, to understand him, to believe in him, but let me encourage you to be faithful with what 
revelation you have received from God to not just see Jesus, but to take the truth, the light about Jesus and put it on a stand. We need to be a kind of people who don't just understand the truth, but who delight in the truth, who don't just delight in the truth, but who delight to be then Christ's witnesses, proclaiming this light, holding out this light in a dark world and helping others to see Jesus too. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, in your evangelism to be holding out the light of the truth about Jesus to those around you. Let me encourage you in our church culture to have a culture of delighting in the Word, of meditating on the Word, of meditating on Christ, and then speaking to one another about the glories that we see of Christ to one another. I encourage you to have in your relationships conversations about the glories that you see, the glories of Christ in your regular Bible reading. Well, we should conclude. As we saw at the beginning as I had in that math class as a sixth grader, a problem with our sight. We realize that we naturally, all of us, have a problem with our spiritual sight. But we have an opportunity through the revelation that God has given us, the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and in his word, an opportunity to be faithful with that light and responsible with it, not just by believing it, by stewarding this truth, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to be faithful stewards of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ in your own lives and in your families and to those around you. It's in Christ's name. Uh, let's conclude by praying now to Christ and asking him to help us to do this. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you that you have revealed him to us. Thank you that he was revealed in glory. We give you praise, not only that you sent Jesus, but that you sent him to such rebels who rejected him. And in your patience, you did not destroy us, but you pursued us. We give you praise that you have revealed not only Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection and ascension, but that you have revealed him through your word and given us an opportunity to know him, to be a part of his family, and to be his witnesses in this dark world. We pray that we would be faithful with the revelation that we have received for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.